Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Kyle, that was almost just your regular voice. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, if I'm going to ease back into like being myself, then um, it's going to be slow and steady. Yeah, I know that SNL auditions are done for the year, so you don't need to work out any characters through your podcast anymore. For- no, that, th- that was me shooting the moon. The whole time I've been doing voices, I was just like, Lauren Michaels, um, I'm sure, is listening to you know, the Captain Fantastic episode. So uh, I'm sure <laughs> I, I just, I just was, yeah, shooting the moon on that one. Yeah, no, actually I heard that Lauren Michaels is a big Marillion fan. Oh! <laughs> because that is the band we are covering today. We're covering their 1995 release, Afraid of Sunlight. We are so excited to get into it. This is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into a 20th century album of the week. It's also an exploration of our music taste and our friendship. If you like what you're hearing, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can actually leave us a voice message on our anchor.fm page now, which is super fun, and we can include it in a future episode. Uh, and you can follow us on all social media of your choice. And we are so excited. He's been waiting in the wings. I don't need to talk anymore because we are joined today. This is very exciting with a friend all the way from London, UK. He's an improviser. He is a musician. You should check out his SoundCloud page at Damn Dirty Grapes. Very uh, influenced by Marillion. Let's give a big warm welcome to Peter Smith. Hello, Peter. Hello, King the Jukebox. <laughs> and, and listeners. <laughs> it's great to have you on. You've been a regular listener for a long time, uh, which we've super appreciated. Yeah, I, I have. I, I've told you that I've listened and I've I've shouted at like my laptop trying to respond to you guys. I've been like um, Abe Simpson banging on the glass. <laughs> you know, I also agree with the points you're making. <laughs> <laughs> so for a long time, Pete used to live in Calgary, where I'm originally from, and we've done some improv together. And now you're back in the UK, relocated back to your home country. You know, because people aren't allowed to stay in the countries where they decide they want to immigrate. <laughs> this is true. That's, that's the reason why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you have a really wonderful taste in music, which is why we're super excited to have you on. And you sort of relocated like right before the pandemic hit, right? No, uh, yeah, I um, yeah, I, I I moved to London the end of like pretty much the end of last year, and then mm. it was smooth sailing for a good four to five months and then uh-huh. the the world went this isn't right and it sort of <laughs> slammed the brakes on the peace happiness train yeah <laughs> seriously yeah so uh, we're really happy to have you on because you know for us this podcast has been a really wonderful way to keep ourselves occupied during these like yeah. as i like to say strange transitional times and you know your music taste sort of i would say correct me if i'm wrong it really veers from like the more pop oriented. I know you like a lot of like singer songwriter songwriter yeah. types. Like I know some of your favorite episodes of 
our podcast with the Elton John episode, yes. the Oingo Boingo episode, and they're like pretty melodic. Yeah. And then also, you know, goes into sort of the more experimental and into sort of the more like proggy world of prog, uh, which is sort of where Marillion falls. Yeah. Yeah, they, they started off uh, early 1980s, uh, late 1979, as a straight-up prog band. And this is during the time that punk had smashed disco in the face, and smashed uh, prog in the face, and it was like, songs over four minutes, how dare you? Um, <laughs> and they, they pretty much were like, well, we're going to do what we want. They were incredibly, like, proggy. I mean, they were named after the J.R.R. Tolkien book, The Silmarillion. <laughs> um, so right. in, in, immediately they've got that sort of nerd cred. And they start, They became like unexpectedly huge. They started building up uh, a huge fan base. They had a lead singer. Um, the original lead singer and writer was a six-foot Scottish guy who went by the name of Fish. Yeah. And he would go on stage in grease paint. He would have props. He would. Uh, they had a song called Grendel. Of course they did. And he would. <laughs> um, he would like take somebody out of the audience and pretend to murder them on stage they were full-on <laughs> proggy but and of course they got comparisons to bands like genesis and bands like yes but i think they are a lot more their early stuff is, is a lot more accessible it's a lot more commercial mm. um in terms of uh, subject matter as well whereas peter gabriel was writing whatever peter gabriel was writing where you know uh, Fish was writing about drug addiction and relationships and uh, the troubles in Ireland, very down-to-earth, very relatable stuff. And I think that's why they, they got this fan base, because it was just regular guys who were like, hey, it's a guy singing a song about being dumped, or it's a guy uh, singing a song about drinking too much. But he had all these, you know, really most wonderful lyrics, and they became huge. They, they had top 10 albums, they had um, top 10 singles, uh, they were, you know, selling out arenas. Uh, at the height of their fame, they were, you know, doing uh, shows across Europe in huge arenas in, in Germany and all this and that. When as big in America, and they had one single on the top of a nude, which was Kaylee, which is their, if you say Marillion to somebody who's vaguely aware of them, they'll go, oh yeah, they sung Kaylee. And Kaylee was their huge hit. And then Fish left, I want to say 87, 89, after their fourth album, Clutching at Straws, because they were just too big, which is unheard of for, uh, you know, a, prog band in the 80s um but yeah he left he was unhappy and they got a new guy called uh, steve hogarth mm -hmm. and he was in a couple of bands that weren't you know they weren't very big they're they bullying it and he actually got an offer to join the the on keyboards yes and, and he said he had an offer to join the coolest band in the world the the <laughs> or the uncoolest band in the world Marillion. <laughs> and he, he joined Marillion, and they have said that in hindsight, they probably would have changed the name because you've got a lot of this baggage of a lot of this 80s stuff of, you know, you look at their album covers, you look at their live shows, very overblown, very colourful, very theatrical. I love them to death. I'll die on the hill. It isn't really. This album, it sounds nothing like their first couple of albums. It is, it, it, like, musically, you can, you can sort of hear similar playing styles, but just in terms of pure musical aesthetics, is that a phrase? It is now. It's it sounds nothing like their first albums because uh, whereas Fish was very theatrical, flamboyant. I'm a big Scottish man singing songs about drugs. Uh, Stephen Hogarth, he's got a very sort of almost like fragile voice. He's very sort of uh, not emotional, but he seemed very sort of 
my mind's saying think of a better word than angelic, but that's all I've got. <laughs> He's it's it, the the way he sings wouldn't exactly fit rough and ready screw you for dumping me subject matter of the first albums. So he got a bit more introspective. He started looking at more sort of um I want to say spiritual, but that sounds hokey and terrible, but but more sort of um wheel wheel word issues, real world issues that fish wouldn't have sang about and i'm just rambling <laughs> would you say that they got maybe slightly more introspective because i feel like this album yeah there's a lot on it that's like quite thinky in terms of uh some of the concepts they're trying to convey through through their songs definitely and i think they got ironically a lot more progressive in terms of what they would do in this in what they would do in the studio so what, mm -hmm. the, the first albums if you listen to them they're pretty much you know uh, seven minute, you know, songs, but in terms of the instrumentation, it's guitar, bass, keyboards, and drums. And then once Steven joined, um, after the first couple of albums, they started experimenting with recording, uh, sort of ambient in caves and playing it in the background. Or uh, there's a track on this album that they recorded in mono, and they started experimenting more with um, ambient sounds and layering and uh, how the keyboard works in things. and basically sort of instead of just being like hey here's a seven minute song with like seven different parts here's a seven minute song with about three parts in it but we let them breathe we let them you know let them build up we let them grow on you like nice fungus <laughs> yeah it feels like there's some influences on this album there's some ambient influences and yeah. also you know uh, this is a term I use a little too much as a catch-all on this podcast. I will admit it myself, but it's it's somewhat psychedelic as well. I was going to say that too, so I'm glad you took the. Uh, we, yeah, we yeah, both I, have the same catch-all. That's a good taking the bullet. I'm taking the bullet for us this yeah, week. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's there's some interesting psychedelic aspects on this album, and it is sort of like a well-conceived soundscape. This entire album, it really has a really good flow to it as well. It's it's one of those albums like you can't listen to. I mean, we are doing it for the podcast, talking about individual tracks, but you can't. It's in, except for one of the songs that uh, Kyle picked. There's no standout single where you would listen to this album and go, "That's the single. That's the right. one we're going to release." One of those albums where it's I'm going to sound awful and pretentious, and I don't care. It's it's I I've, it's like a book. You can't just you have to sort of just. No, it's like a short story as an album. You have to listen to it all at once because it just flows that sort of way again. With, with the first albums, they were you know very very different. Very um, each you know each song stood alone because it's for the live show. We've got to pick songs out for the live show. With this, it's it's very much like oh well, you can't play that one without playing that one before it and that one after it because it just it just doesn't fit the mold of that song. Doing things with my hands. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a lot of stuff with your hands that uh, our listeners can not hear at home or not see at home, but mm -hmm. I'm, they're great. <laughs> Dennis DeYoung in the Mr. Roboto video. <laughs> so, Pete, uh, one more thing that I want to get into before we listen to the first track on the album, listen to some of it, and talk about it. This shift, this album is considered one of their best records and was yeah. somewhat well received by the British music press at the time. And that wasn't really the case with them. It's, it was, they were always sort of a, a well-regarded band in terms of fans. They have a, a, a immensely dedicated fan base. I would, I would say 
the second most dedicated fan base you'd find is probably Jonestown. But in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, <laughs> um, in terms of like pure, I mean, they have Marillion weekends, like in in Holland, where people will go and see them. They they were one of the first bands who pioneered um, internet purchasing. Uh, yes, late, the late nineties. They said, "Hey, we don't have a label. If we sort of say we're going to make an album, would you guys pay for it in advance?" Would that happen? And loads of people went, yes, we'll do it. They they had fans fund their US tours. Yeah, they're they're crowdfunding pioneers, which is yeah. so so interesting. But in like you're saying, in terms of reception from the US press, it was not the US press, the UK press and the US press even. Uh it was never I mean, in the eighties, of course, when they were, you know, on top of the pops and um old grey whistle fest, uh, and they were climbing up the charts, it was like, yeah, Marillia, there's this there's this huge thing. And then the nineties came and it wasn't very much a sort of thing you acknowledge. And I think this album, there is a review, and I can't remember who it's by, and it basically said, you know, if if Radiohead or somebody else made this album, it would be called a masterpiece. Yeah. Because it's Marillion would sort of, I mean, Q, like Q Magazine. Do you guys have Q in America? Yeah, do. well, we, we uh, yes, yes. yes. I mean, so, yeah, you go Q, to the right, <laughs> you go to the right, <laughs> yeah, magazine stand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so Q, Q Magazine, who were like this very highbrow, you know, they were Rolling Stone for the thinking crowd. Um, they they said it was one of the best albums of 1995, yeah. but they re- they refused to interview or talk to the band, They which was baffling. And then this happened again in the mid-2000s. They had their first UK top 10 hit in about, you know, sort of 15 years. And the BBC wouldn't play it on the radio because they said, oh, we don't think our listeners are interested in this. And you're like, well, yeah, they are, because it's in the top 10. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. And they sent, they sent for one of their most recent albums, they sent like a press release saying, please review this album without using the terms progressive rock, dinosaurs, fish, archaic, <laughs> um, overblown. Because if you do, we know you won't have listened to the album. And they're a huge influence on uh, on Radiohead. Radiohead of um, Radiohead is a collective, oh. the collective unit of Radiohead has been <laughs> in, has been has been inspired by some of their stuff. You can definitely hear it in bands like Elbow, um, mm. Coldplay, that sort of uh, melodic sort of piano led synthy yeah. style. But they're still viewed by certain outlets and certain um, broadcasters as this sort of overblown you know genesis ripoff from the 80s which is very unfair yeah do we think that that is an a, a, a do you think that's an ageism or do we think that that's it's just an overall like ignorance in terms of like the music you know these these critics not really wanting to do their job sort of a late is it a laziness and ageism like what's happening here with these yeah, guys yeah i mean they always get they get great reviews from the modern sort of like classic rock magazine and prog magazine um maybe a bit biased prog magazine really liked them a lot but i think when yeah you've but got- prog magazine probably doesn't like all the prog that comes out <laughs> like like it's like <laughs> we're saying like true. it's okay to it's okay to be in your <laughs> genre and to be enjoyed by the critics of your genre like that shouldn't be a mark of shame you know what i mean that yeah. is true i think it's it's just because in the 80s, they were such a, a one-off with this larger-than-life frontman. He's really garish, I mean, wonderful album covers, but very, not pretentious, but very sort of in-your-face, um, you know, albums that were called stuff like Script for a Justice Tear, you know, uh, singing songs, uh, you know, that were like eight minutes long called Incubus or Cheek Chameleon. And I think just because of the success of that, it sort of overshadowed the 90s period, which is incredibly different 
this album is very, very different to the 80s stuff. So I wouldn't say, oh, if you like this, check out the early stuff. I'd say, if you like this, go in reverse order and then mm. maybe sort of ease your way into that. They, it's, I think it's, that's what they said. You know, if we started again with Steve Hogarth, we probably would have changed the name because it's such a huge monkey on your back. It's got all these expectations from it when your best known songs are very sort of synth heavy, um, proggy sort of stuff that we, you know, they were hit singles, but it's a very expected sound. And when you're no longer doing it and people are like, well, I don't, I don't like this. What's going on? Yeah. It's a, it was a major shift for them. And it's a shift that makes them sound like very much of this era. And I'm not saying that in a disparaging way, like, you know, this album from 1995 sounds like a really great example of like smart, interesting, 1995 prog yeah. rock sound songwriting well yeah i think that that's a good point is that and i think that's to go along with the baggage and it's hard for us in the u.s sometimes to conceptualize it because prog rock never really meant it was never it never took hold here in any really serious way like it did in the uk yeah i think and you know it's hard to underestimate also the backlash and with against it in specifically the 80s which is why Marillion would have been a one-off anyway, but I think when you get into the 90s, you get bands that are definitely incorporating more explicitly progressive, quote-unquote, elements, Mm -hmm. but, you know, again, like a Radiohead or or even like some, some, you know, like if you look at this, listen to certain pr- production elements, like I'm hearing like the drums on this album, I'm hearing, you know, what, whether you like them or not, but like Tool or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tool, ne- like you, there are people who don't like Tool, but they never got shit, it seems yeah, like, the way that Marillion did. Exactly. It's it's this thing where you listen to a song like Paranoid Android, you would go, that is unaccessibly a progressive rock song. It, right. it's, it's not progressive rock in the terms of like Peter Gabriel or Yes or Pink Floyd, but just in the terms of the instrumentation, the way it's laid out, the way it's recorded, that is a progressive rock song. Yeah, he's not uh, singing about a medieval forest, but it's still progressive. <laughs> yeah, but, he's, but the title is Paranoid Android, which is really, you know, just another flavor. It's a different flavor of a it's, similar sort of geekery. Maybe, maybe if they called it the Bard's Paranoia, then maybe. And I think the, the thing is as well, US, US, the US prog rock that's well known, bands like Kansas, they're still very commercial. It's It's... There's a big difference between a song like, you know, uh, Carry On My Wayward Son and the stuff Marillion were doing in the 80s or even Genesis were doing. It was still that commercial flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this was sort of, yeah, it, it's it's progressive in the sense that it's not, you know, uh, Rick Wakeman with a flowery cape, you know, <laughs> doing 11-minute keyboard um, right. solos. It's progressive just in the terms of the song structure and the way it sounds. Yeah, let's listen to Gaspacho, the yeah. opening track on the album. Thank you. 
So Peter, before we even get into the musical content of this song, I would love for you to walk us through that intro and what's going on there. Cause I think it lays down a really interesting aesthetic template for the rest of the album. The intro is from an unspecified, there's, there's two parts of the intro. There's an unspecified boxing ring announcement. Yeah. And then there's a John Lennon interview, um, or it's, it's actually the actor Bernard Hill, pretending to be John Lennon, but it's John Lennon. Um, yeah, and it's his, it's his actual words. It's just, it's, it's, it's just his, that it I wasn't think, a recorded interview. Yeah, right? I think yeah. it's his, his interview from Playboy. Um, and it gets into the theme of the album. The theme of the album is, uh, apart from a couple of tracks, it's very much about the disillusionment of fame. It's about the sort of pressures um, of not only the fan base, but the pressures you put on yourself uh, when you when you're in this, you know, this successive bubble. Uh, it's also about the sort of um, excuses that can be made for sort of behaviours you do because you're famous. I mean, the, the boxing ring announcement. It's uh, and the song itself. When I ramble about some of the lyrics, it's a reference to Mike Tyson and Jake LaMotta, people who were let's say we say less than savvy and less than polite towards women, but because of their because of their fame and because of what they did, it was kind of excused. And it's that sort of you know that that ring of protection you get when you're in the limelight, and and a lot of the lyrics mention it. Um, and then at the end, there's a snippet of the O.J. Simpson uh, Bronco chase. Um, yes. And again, that that uh, folds back into the sort of domestic violence, um, very very grim subject matter for such a nice sounding song. Um, but it, <laughs> it, it, it gets into that sort of um, violence caused by fame, and is it caused by fame? What does the spotlight do on it? Uh, all these very interesting things that the band enunciate a lot better in seven minutes than I'm, and I can ramble about in five hours. <laughs> well, that that is actually something you bring up with this. Uh, I think that this album and something that I really enjoyed listening through to it this week is that it like handles some really interesting concepts surrounding male toxicity really, really well. And, yes. and you know, that's something that I know a critic said about them is that like this band is like if radio had got in touch with their feminine side, <laughs> you know, but that's great. And it's kind of, um, a surprising move to make from a group of guys who are, you know, boomers, basically, yeah. but but are now in uh, a second whole phase of their career and are aging musicians. They seem to have a pretty good handle on the pros and cons of being an artistic man or a famous man in society, it feels yeah. like. And, it, and it's, it's kind of the opposite of what Fish would do because Fish was, uh, I mean, he wasn't a misogynist, but some of his lyrics would might be a bit sort of spiteful or a bit sort of angry towards women who've broken up with him or women he's been with. Um, whereas this is the complete opposite. It, it's it's this again, it's Steve couldn't sing about the stuff Fish was doing, so Steve's like, okay, well, let's sing about something that my voice and my lyrics can handle a lot better than, and, and I think it's the fact as well is. This is you know, a world apart from, again, you, you say progressive rock, and again, you think of uh, the songs about, you, you think of Sticks, you think of Sticks. As much as I love Sticks, you think of, you know, the grand delusion. Yeah, it's a different, it's just, it's a different, it's a different, like, set of lyrical tools. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it just, the music that you hear doesn't match the subject matter, uh, whereas this is, it fits perfectly. Um, and in fact, the first time I, I heard it, I, uh, I actually, I thought it was about, um, 
dictators. Um, mm-hmm. Which was just the way I was listening to it, and then I, I you know, I wrote over. And that's what I like about it is the fact it takes repeated listens. I like songs where you have to read the lyrics afterwards, um, because then you you take a whole new appreciation for it. And you go, oh wow, that's really quite clever. I was too busy just grooving along to feel sad about toxic masculinity. Well, I think not only lyrically, but to switch to the music. So when I, I, I had never listened to Marillion before, and I went into this album completely cold, didn't really read anything about them. And I'll say, I started listening to this song, and I I had nothing to grasp onto. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what, what how do I contextualize this? What, what am I listening to? Where is this coming from? Because, um, you know, I was like, it's not Prague. It's not... There's like sort of slick '90s production, but you don't. It, I, yeah. it doesn't net fit really that well into like what a, a lot of other like mid '90s like rock stuff that was happening yeah. at the time. So it was like this, you know, just talking about took 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 a few times to like get a feel for it. And now I, you know, I really literally right before we were. Um, you know, started talking, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> like this whole album. But this, like, as this song as an intro, I was like, it took me a bit. <laughs> That's the thing is, is the guitars, um, Steve Ruffley, the guitarist, he's a huge fan of Joni Mitchell. So mm. in, his, in the later parts of Ann's career, he started like um, doing more single notes, acoustic lines or electric, you know, uh, chorus lines like we heard at the start. It, capos all the way down his guitar um he was very influential for me uh, growing up as a musician uh gotta sound like i'm in a documentary but you know when you first start getting into music or rock music like i and all the cool kids got into it's like riffs you gotta have the riffs every song's <laughs> gotta have a riff and then you hear these guys are like no you can have a nice i think this is uh, in terms of it's about three notes you can have a three note guitar line that propels the first i mean it's like an it's like it's got this new wavy vibe to it it's like mm. I, i'm listening to it and you sort of go uh from the muffins it's got you know it's <laughs> and but then you've got this sort of really aggressive post-punk cure style bass that comes in you've then got the sort of um the angelic sort of keyboards that you hear at the start it is pretty much this mixture of a lot of different styles that somehow work really well together because the band know what they're doing (laughs) yeah and the the whole song has sort of this like tone of longing yeah like there is you know definitely there's a brightness the instrumentation (laughs) but you can tell that this is about you know like there's like a sense of loss to the entire song that i think is really beautiful and really palpable here. Yeah, the, the title itself comes from, uh, let me read the lyrics of the title in my best British voice. <laughs> please, uh, yes, so, that's, yeah, why we, the, that's why we have you on. We want you to use your best <laughs> British voice, please. Lord Michaels, if you're also listening. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, I have, I've never been problematic on a podcast, Lord Michaels. So yeah, the, uh, the, the reference to the chorus title, um, did you carry out those threats I heard, or were you only playing that joke? And the stains on her Versace scarf, were they really just gazpacho? Uh, which, of course, you know, references domestic violence, blood on the scarf, uh, you know, this sort of Versace scarf, elitist lifestyle. And it seems far too down to earth. It seems far too sort of, um, I mean, there's there's a bit later on where the lyric is literally just, uh, your wife needs police protection, which doesn't seem like it would fit in a song, but it does. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's about public-facing persona, you know, the, your wife has got, oh, she's got a stain on her scarf. Is it blood? Is it gazpacho? That's not the word, so on the chorus, so I'm just repeating it. 
And yeah, for such upbeat, peppy music, it's talking about, you know, a sort of darkness hiding between your, your marriage and frustrations because maybe your career isn't going as well as it used to. Uh, there's another lyric I really, really like, uh, which is, uh, now the ring is just a band of gold. Yes, yeah. Which is, the, the boxing ring is now just a band of gold. A wedding ring. Mm-hmm. And you've got the insinuation that violence has jumped from one arena to the other. You've got mm-hmm. the insinuation that, you know, what you had, this career that you had, is now just, you're, you're married, that's it, you're out of it. Uh, and it, yeah, it it, to- it uh, tackles, it tackles the sort of dent, I guess, that maybe a lot of the athletes or celebrities who had careers like that would face. Uh, more lyrics that I really like. They say the king is losing his grip again. Mm-hmm. They say the, the king is counting his numbered days. Uh, you think they will forgive a hero anything, maybe Hollywood, but maybe then again. And I think that it's important to talk within the context of this album, specifically about the O.J. Simpson trial of the mid-90s and how it was a real reckoning point where the outward-facing personas of athletes and famous people and the inward-facing, you know, their inner lives or their home lives, it was sort of all blown up and strewn around like in a big cultural blender. And it was was definitely a a recontextualization in terms of how we viewed celebrities and athletes the entire Mm -hmm. OJ trial. And I think that this is them trying to work that out. Yeah, because the track ends with the news footage of the Bronco report. And when people talk about the Bronco chase, they talk about it like it's a sport event. You know, were you, were you watching the thing? Did you see it live? Oh, yeah, we ordered pizza to watch it. Mm-hmm. And what it boils down to, this was a man running from the police because he may or may not have admitted his wife. It's a very dark, traumatic thing. But it's viewed as this big sort of, you know, oh, we've got millions of viewers. It was this huge cultural event. But the actual events surrounding it were very grim, very upsetting. Um, ruined the Naked Gun movies for a lot of people. Um, I can't really watch the Naked Gun movies. And it is that fact which is just, you know, maybe uh, they they think, uh, you think they will forgive a hero anything. Uh, you're sparring with journalists. Um, they say the king is watching his back again. But, you know, it was, it was, uh, OJ, it was the Dukes. It was OJ Simpson. And it is that sort of facade of that. Somebody you put on a pedestal still be a terrible person and i wonder regardless of you know oj's crimes and Mm. uh like oj simpson you know just to set that aside for a second in this conversation the fact that it was so much the media's part to play to sort of bring him up as a public figure and then drag him down i wonder if marillion were feeling somewhat similar in their relationship (laughs) with uh with the music press at the time yeah in fact when they made this album that their previous album was called brave and a lot of fans will say that's also one of their best albums i think it's one of the best i was actually going to suggest it for the podcast but it's about like you know 80 minutes long i thought we'll leave that for (laughs) another day (laughs) yes but we'll that leave that, that for our for our Marillion season. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know got really good reviews, really good um, critical praise. Did fine on the charts. But when they were making this one, the band uh, were told, you know, we're going to send a PR guy from EMI to oversee the recordings because we want a hit album. We want mm. something. We want something that will sell. We don't want these, you know, songs. Uh, you know, we, these. Um, you know, two, nearly two hour long albums. We want something streamlined. We want something mainstream. So they were recording this with a guy over their shoulder, watching their moves, listening to the demo tapes, listening to, you know, 
the music equivalent of dailies, what they had done for the day. And it is that sort of, yeah, that that's disillusionment of the press, you know, heralding them as the great thing in the 80s, and then suddenly saying, hey, we think this album you did is great. I mean, the irony is, you know, later on, Q saying, we think this album you did is amazing. We don't want to interview you, though. We don't want to talk to you, though. Mm-hmm. It, and it's just sort of like, um, I've lost it. I've lost the phrase, a, a, a something prophecy. It's a... Self-fulfilling it's, prophecy? Thank you. There we go. I'm sure. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is that notion of them going, okay, we're going to record an album. We just have a disillusionment with the press. How finicky fan bases can be, which later on in the album, the, the end track King is a big you know, homage to Elvis and Kurt Cobain and um, the pressures that fan base puts on you and how they could just flip on you like that. And yeah, I, I think while it's not on the same level as the, the OJ thing, what is, it is that sense of the media finding you as critical darlings one minute and then as soon as you might record a Duff album or, you know, do something that's a bit naff or rubbish, um, they'll immediately go, okay, we're done with you, get out of here. As long as you're making headlines, that's all we want you for. Mm. Kyle, we really should uh, integrate the terms naff and rubbish more into what was, we do was, on this podcast. I was going to say, I didn't, I didn't know what the Americans' term for naff and rubbish were. Well, uh, as soon as you said it, I was like, finally! Yes, yeah, exactly. I know, this, is, this, is scratching, this episode's scratching a lot of itches for us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, thank God. <laughs> and and speaking speaking of scratching some itches here, let's mm. listen to Cannibal Surf Babe, which is the second track from <laughs> yes. the record. shocked pete that this is the song that i chose to talk about I this week my, my, my monocle popped off i know <laughs> this is a real this one's a real stretch for me as soon as my envoy handed me my facebook messages i went my god <laughs> I, I spilled my brandy and my monocle popped off in shock <laughs> yeah this one for me is definitely was when I latched onto the album hearing it this week, which is not not a huge surprise. But I do feel like these guys do some interesting an interesting job sort of recontextualizing some like well-worn mm. uh, music and science fiction tropes here. It's it's like the Beach Boys with teeth. It's this yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, I feel like the best way to describe the intro and the end of the song that like California girls pastiche <laughs> is 
uh, as it sounds like the Beach Boys, but they're melting. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I would describe it personally. <laughs> like they're you know sinking back into the sand. Uh, <laughs> from whence they came. Yeah, from whence. Yeah, exactly. From whence they came. But I really like this one because it, you know, once again now is dealing with sort of this like death of the idealistic hippie '60s music dream. There's a full description in the song of looking for you know, bearded, like brilliant mm. Brian Wilson before the fall, before yeah. Brian Wilson went into 25 years of uh, yeah. drug addiction and, and mania and, and, you know, of being a dysfunctional human being. And, uh, and then it also, you know, is telling the story, which I think is sort of symbolic of like the general loss of 60s innocence that they're describing here. It's yeah. telling the story of this like alien cannibalistic flower child who really just wants to absorb you. (laughs) Seems to be what what she wants to have happen here. But that, you know, they're saying that, you know, once once you allow the cannibal surf babe to eat (laughs) you, you will you will be content because you you know you will be at one with with peace in the and the universe. It's sort of sort sort of a cool analogy for the way that the 60s ended up going so bad when it was so idealistic and ended up becoming such a fraught, fraught period. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and and also the Beach Boys being tied into the history of the Manson family. Yeah. It's It's not uh, a mistake. I think I think they're they're drawing a lot of lines together here for the, for this one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a really good line I like, which is, um, "Mr. Wilson, where's your sandbox and your beard?" Yes. And you know, because you... he used to sit in a sandbox and play yeah. the piano. Yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, are you still looking for that perfect microwave? And that is a that is a silly pun that I love because, of course, it's you know, the, you know surf's up. We've got to find that massive wave, and here it is referring to his his junk food period. So of course he's just he's just looking for the microwave because he was big big fat Brian Wilson. Um, <laughs> oh poor guy. Yeah. Oh poor guy. Yeah, you are right. It is. It's got like all the archetypes of the surf rock scene. It's got that sort of music guitar. It's got the wonderful plastic surf rock organ. You know, stabbing in and out. And then you listen to the lyrics. And it's about this you know uh, beautiful woman who's spouting all this nonsense. Like we're all heaven's children living together in paradise. Uh, but then she eats people, um, which of course is frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> although, although I did suggest to a bunch of friends last night, not to get too off topic, that if 2020 continues to go as poorly as it's going, that maybe it should end with all of us just eating each other. And that might just be a great way just to kind of finish it off. Just, yeah. just wrap it up. Yeah, 2020 should have a big campy uh, sci-fi ending. <laughs> <laughs> I would say 2020 is already kind of a big campy sci-fi disaster in itself. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's a bit cartoonish. It is. I would, say, I would say 2020 is the behind the scenes of a terrible disaster movie. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just like being so hectic to be made. But 20, 2020 is being written by a real like, crap yes. author so yeah. yeah a real yeah 2020 is written by l ron hubbard yes <laughs> totally oh my god oh. <laughs> so something before we move on from this track something that i want to talk to you guys about that this track made me think about is surf music as a genre when it started in the 60s 
I don't think that anybody that were the fathers of, of this style of music ever thought that its tropes would be used to convey such a range of emotion that later artists used it for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so kind of interesting, you know, and, and definitely yeah. there's elements to this song that remind me of, of my beloved B-52s. I'm really glad you mentioned that because if they were looking to undermine their reputation as like, you know, pro, uh, you know, prog rock ripoff wannabes, this song does an amazing job. First of all, the title, I was like, that could be a B-52 song, Cannibal Surf yeah. Babe, like Definitely. 100%. Yeah. And then also the like elements and tropes that they're utilizing are not, they are like, it's the opposite of what you would hear on like a typical prototypical prog rock song. And not only that, you know, surf rock and then like sixties junk culture are, it's almost a cliche of how much it's been incorporated into like stereotypically like really hip rock music, uh, like fashionable (laughs) rock music. Like that's the stuff that like the B 52s or, you know, like pitchfork jizzes over they pitchfork would never jizz <laughs> over marillion but like they are incorporating the same stuff that all those yeah. co- cool bands are doing yeah oh yeah and I, I i this is maybe it's one of my interpretations i've gone back to my english lit seminar so i might be spouting nonsense the the title cannibal surf babe it just to me it makes you think of the way that surf music and a lot of music just ends up cannibalizing itself it sure up become, like as i'm not a huge beach boys fan um, but I'll enjoy some of their songs. But if you listen to sort of four or five of their early stuff in a row, it's just like, this is the same. And then all these other bands were doing it. It's like with Chuck Berry and all the sort of um, 50s rock where every, one song or one thing would become big and then everyone would just do it. And no one would go, you've just ripped off. That's just School Days <laughs> by Chuck Berry. That's exactly yeah. the same song. It just yes. became a genre. It just ended up eating itself to the point where everyone became disillusioned with it and became Fat Brian Wilson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> where it ended up eating itself and flipping and becoming yeah. the same thing, yes. you know, all together. Yeah, you know, through a bunch of mastication and digestion. <laughs> yeah, it became yeah became its own thing. Uh, yeah, and then and then also just like uh, just to flip it back to that B fifty twos comparison one more time, just like feel like the B fifty twos in a lot of ways and you know they might not agree with me on this but i think if you listen to them they are somewhat like 60s apologists Mm -hmm. in terms of like the lyrical content and the way they use the musical content but i would say that these guys are like very staunchly 60s (laughs) non-apologists you know and you and using these motifs in order to tell a like a much more frank story about that time and about like those values as well sort of those hippie values that like couldn't be realized in the 60s for some really specific sociological reasons you know i think it goes back to the point of the media how the media portrays things and most of the time the 60s is seen as the the flower power era the love child era and then you'll go well actually there was a lot of bad stuff that happened in the 60s why are we not why are we not talking about that i mean we shouldn't it's grim but why aren't we (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I think that that is the story of the era, though, and that's one of the things that makes the highs so high and makes the yeah. lows so low. And mm. one without the other, they can't exist. As much as I would love, uh, spoiler for a year-old movie, but a, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah, ending for the yeah. 60s, 
where you know Charles Manson, where the Manson family gets killed by a couple of actors instead of yeah. the other way around. Uh, that isn't what ended up what ended up no. happening, and I think that mm-hmm. this song's a pretty frank, frank yeah. uh, story about what actually happened. So yeah. yeah, so yeah, that's um that you know, that's that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would just like to quote the lyrics: uh, "She looked like she'd had sex with a Tyrannosaurus Rex." Yes, yes. <laughs> so that good. could be a B-52s line too easily. Yeah. She looks like she had <laughs> sex with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> the next time I see Fred Schneider, Please. I'm not going to mention this to him because he'll just get mad at me. Just, you know, it's Fred, Fred. Could you read this for me, please? It's like yeah. no, Marlin. <laughs> no, I won't fucking read it for you. That's that would be his response. No, th- no, thank you. I anyway. want my one weakness. <laughs> So the last track we're going to cover is the third track on the album. And this is just happened to be the three tracks that really struck us for this week. But the whole thing is worth a listen all the way through. The fact that we're only covering the first three. Please, please forgive us, Marillion fans. It's (laughs) certainly nothing against you. Uh, uh, It's called Beautiful. Uh, Let's give it a spin. part of the discussion with a question for you mm-hmm. you've said in the past that you are not a power ballad guy mm-hmm. and to me this one really has a lot of tropes in it that resemble a power ballad it is a power ballad yeah and <laughs> but you like this I one think, right um i think i mostly i wanted to pick it because i, I think it, it's just interesting to talk about i mean i don't i i like it i like mm-hmm. it but I mean, I much prefer pretty much everything on the album that comes after this. And I for sure. But I, mm-hmm. but I think that is worth listening to um, as a whole. And that's, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes worth of music. That, like, my favorite part of this whole album comes directly after this song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's really epic, super dynamic, really interesting, I think really unique. So that, I just wanted to say that. Um, But this song also is interesting because as we mentioned before, it's the only single on the album, which is interesting that they even felt the need to release a single. And Mm. I I do think it kind of stands, I mean, it's, it's, it's the most catchy song on the album. It could, I think this could, it sounds, this song sounds like it more, 
more than any other song on the album, I think like they could have written this and given to someone else. Whereas I think mm. a lot of the other tracks on the album were very much a result of their own creativity and uh, stuff in the studio and their own personal style. So I just think I, I kind of wanted to ask Peter like what he thought about this and where it fits in, and it just seems you know when you when you go when yeah. you were saying that there was a PR man uh, you know on their shoulder the whole time, it, this seems like we'll give him this song and then the rest yeah. of the song, album is ours. I, I, I don't know. Um, which is a terrible response. <laughs> which is a terrible no, response. No. Yeah. But, uh, goodbye, everybody. No, <laughs> I, I, I get it. It does. It sounds like uh, whenever I listen to it, I, I'm always like, if a band like U2 or Savage Garden released this, it would have been a top, it would have been a smash hit. That's it what I was thinking. Yeah, it would have been a top 10 hit. Yeah, I was thinking like Brian Adams or like, you know, exactly, even like yeah. Ozzy, you know, Ozzy was doing like power ballads at this time or something yeah. like that. He could have done that. <laughs> everything's beautiful. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, why, is it, why is everything so beautiful? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's, um, it, the, I think it's worrying that you could write a song like this and it would end up with like, well, Christina Aguilera, Beautiful Territory, where it's very saccharine, very, um, patronizing things are great don't worry about it and then you look at the lyrics which are quite and not as upbeat um and i think it, it goes back into the the pretense of how the media views things i mean the um second verse is or something there uh we live in a world where what we call beautiful is just something on sale yeah. um the leaves turn from red to brown fall to the ground to be trodden down and the parts of the song are very pessimistic they're very sort of um cynical of the way things are viewed uh in terms of the music they've done, they done plenty of songs before that were very sort of melodic and, and very much like this so i don't know if it was maybe i don't think it was intentionally meant to sound this way as a single i think they just liked writing songs like this mm -hmm. and then it then just because of the the lyrics and the title and the way the song is then sung it then has this appearance of something that is like factory made and sure. i think it might be an alanis morissette ironic title thing where it's ironic you know it's this very nice beautiful song that is you know a critique of things that are just churned out to make people money and be nice and happy very true but no it's, it is interesting to hear it because this was one of not a worry but it was this sort of the first two songs are very you know weird and different and then you get this which is like you said compared to the rest of the album which is very introspective can be very sort of bleak and quiet at times. This is very bright and chipper and peppy. And it's got this shimmering guitar line at the start, which I, I love. I'll fight for that guitar line. But mm -hmm. it is that sort of, if you would if you played this on the radio, you'd be like, oh, that's just a one-hit wonder from the 90s that, you know, we never heard from again. It's their, their um, the deep blue something of uh, their time. <laughs> so I think we're just deep blue something. It's, I don't know, I, I, I want to view it in terms of the way the album is structured and the, and the themes it talks about, I want to view it as a sort of very ironic, in terms of music, commentary on the disposable nature of what the media presents as the, the new thing and the hip thing. And, you know, oh, this is beautiful, this person's amazing, they're epic, and then yeah, they're just gone. You know, like, autumn leaves. <laughs> I, I feel that this song is on theme for the album in a few other ways too that I want to bring up that I think that this at its core is a song about misplaced values, mm. you know, because like this really is, is about the fact that I love that line. We give bad names to beautiful things. 
you know, yeah. that like we're, we're flipping what we think is actually beautiful. And then that metaphor of the leaves falling and turning from red to brown, that that's yeah. actually what's beautiful is like, you know, authentic nature, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, authenticity is beautiful. Um, and I think it like ties into the John Lennon interview at the very beginning yeah. that, you know, sort of like that Lennon uh, uh, acknowledges a sort of an ugliness in himself that made him feel very isolated during his life. Mm. And that maybe it's sort of that ugly isolation that's actually the, the beautiful and, and the, uh, the stuff that uh, ends up making a real lasting impression on the world. But yeah, but I'm interested, but uh, the packaging here is really interesting in terms of yep. the, mu the music. Uh, Cause it is, it's well-written and it's fun. I think it also like, you guys, yeah, you've compared it to like Savage Garden or mm. like someone like that. And I agree with that to an extent, but I actually feel that the arrangement is like five years, 10 years behind. Like, I feel mm. like the arrangement of this like really squarely puts it in like 1985 territory. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> especially that like 80s synth that's on it as well. Yeah. You know, that makes it kind of a hard single for 95. Like this isn't, this doesn't have the same kind of feel in terms of the way it's produced as like truly madly deeply, you know, yeah. which is from, I think, which is from 95. Now it's like from like 95 or 97 or yeah. somewhere right around there. Uh, and boy, it, it was it, such a treat. It was it, so, boy, oh boy. It, it anyway. might just be a, a band saying, hey, this is us. This is the music we make. Do you? It's, it sounds like the most lovely sounding F you to the media ever. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it, it's mm -hmm. being all punk and in your face. It's like, we're going to show you with this really delightful little ditty. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Look, we could write this. Isn't this yeah. nice? We like this writing stuff like this sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, this is a little dumb, and I've never done this on the show before, but I found it so funny. <laughs> I found a comment on songmeanings.com for this Ooh. album that's so hilarious and, and okay. weird, and I thought that we could maybe talk about it for just, a, I don't want to give it too much credence. Ah. It's from June 14th, 2008. It's from yeah. a, uh, a uh, user named A Show of Hands. And it mm. reads thusly, <laughs> the title of this song is perfectly fitting. See, when a song is called beautiful, do you, ex do you expect it to be beautiful? <laughs> Nay, you expect it to be the most terrible, ugly, horrible song ever to plague music. And that's exactly what this song is. <gasps> <laughs> if I didn't know any better, I would think that this song was by some lesbian band, <laughs> like In Sync or the Backstreet Girls. Fortunately, I have the brain power to know that those bands could only dream of sucking this hard. Oh, end quote. He, he, he had me in the first half. <laughs> In the, in the first half, you're like, okay, okay. Oh, man. A, a show of hands. You're about to get these hands. Yeah. <laughs> you're, about, you're about to get these hands. I mean, he, he has a point. It, it seems so on the nose to label a song beautiful and not have it be a satirical, you know, ironic, apart from the Christina Aguilera, you know, you're all beautiful, apart yes. from Stalin, sort of, you know, songs like that, you know, uplifting ones. When a song is called Beautiful, do you expect it to be beautiful? I mean, he's right. I, I, I kind of don't. But that's maybe, that's just the way society has raised me. I think the song is 
it's interesting. I think the song is is beautiful, mm-hmm. and maybe that's kind of the it's maybe it's trying to keep you thinking through its arrangement because like there is with that style of songwriting and with that style of production, there's going to be like this bass feeling that you have immediately when you listen to it, that like, this is a nice song. And can we also just acknowledge like how retro it is to be like, I hate this music because it's too gay. <laughs> totally. I mean, obviously it's a homophobic. It's 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 a he's just, trying to make it into it a anymore. homophobic uh, trying to make it into a homophobic <laughs> yeah. comment and all that for sure. And you know, totally. But like, I really fuck? but I really love and I, I didn't say this and you know, we shouldn't be celebrating this in any way. And this is such a this is such a queer podcast for obvious reasons already. But I do love how hard this poster tries <laughs> to he calls these boy bands lesbian, lesbian bands. Lesbian bands. Yeah. And uh, it's just I just thought it was so funny. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, he's like, I hate these lesbian bands, but Melissa Etheridge fucking rules. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. It's um it's just it's just feels like it, it feels like someone who has really thought a lot about why yeah. they yeah. hate this song and hate Marillion as yeah. well, which I think is a good way. It's one of the reasons why I want to read it to y'all. <laughs> I think that it's a good way to sort of get back into like, you know, some closing thoughts about these guys as a band and like how they are considered somewhat the butt of a lot yeah. of like jokes in British culture. Yeah. And and it's so <laughs> strange. And this is going to be a, a weird comparison. Speaking of a lesbian band, uh, I'm going to compare them just for a moment to Hanson, specifically. Um, because I know. No, let once him, again, me, once again me, me the not being lesbians to top the charts. Yes, me not being nice on multiple ways, as per usual. Um, what, a, but, what a coincidence. Not only are they all related, they're all lesbians. I know, they're all beautiful lesbians, and we love them, and we love them for being lesbians. And this is that's a positive thing I'm saying on this podcast. But there's a band that had uh, early hit that mm. were like perfectly, it was a perfectly innocuous hit in the late 90s. And then since then have had a really difficult relationship yeah. with the music industry, despite the fact that they've actually turned into quite good songwriters and i've threatened this in the past on this podcast but we are going to cover them at some point because there's a few albums from them that i really like and then had this total divorce from the music industry and are basically running their own cottage industry by selling self-publishing live concerts and you know box sets and then like Hansen has products, and I know that Marillion does somewhat as well. Like Marillion is having these gatherings, which I think is yeah. like a really similar uh, thing. Where here's this like entirely well-meaning, perfectly yeah. cool legion of fans <laughs> that are keeping these musicians basically employed, and are just completely derided for pretty much no reason by like mainstream music press and the mainstream media. It, it reminds me of the only Hanson show I ever went to was about uh, seven, eight years ago now, but it's just like these like super 
into Hanson women in their 20s and 30s. And it's like, why are we disparaging their music taste? They're like perfectly nice, knowledgeable music consumers who are, you know, and I feel the same way about this band. It's like, well, these are just, you know, music fans that really like what Marillion are singing about. And the stuff they're singing about is like somewhat complex and and nuanced and interesting, you know? I think it also goes back into the, to, to, I'm, I'm back in essay mode, but to go back into the album, that view of the media, I mean, when Umbop came out, it's like you couldn't get enough of it for the month it was out. And then the next month it was like, I hate this song. I never want to hear it again. Yeah. It's like, but like three days ago, I would have injected Umbop into my veins. I would have just like free-based Umbop in a motel. And now it's just like, it's just like, we're done. We're done with Umbop. Get it away from me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's destroy I, these these kids. And in this case, let's... Kids. Let's destroy these like perfectly lovely, well-meaning and interesting prog rock musicians who are like growing as artists with each release and doing (laughs) new and different things. Like God forbid, you know? At the end of the day, I have one more question for you, Pete, about this about this band. Okay. I wanna know, and I was gonna ask you this at the beginning, but I feel like this is a good closer. How did you get into these guys in the first place? I would love to know. And what's your relationship with them now? How do you feel it's progressed? And how do you feel about this fan base that exists for these guys? Oh, man. Um, I, I got into them, I want to say, just like going down like the, when you start getting into music, when I start getting into music, it's all the sort of uh, quote unquote like training wheels bands that you get into like acdc guns and roses led zeppelin mm-hmm. all the really obvious bands and then you start digging deeper you start stumbling onto other things and i i must have seen my uh in the attic my mum had a uh she still had like a, an lp single of kaylee which was their biggest hit um and i was like wow look at the art the art looks really cool and it was that i was judging a book by its cover Mm-hmm. Do that, but the artwork was so nice. Um, and I listened to it, and I bought I bought one of their greatest hits albums, and it's an actually it's actually a greatest hits album. The bands don't like because it's got a really crappy song selection. Mm, it's got it's got it's got like really weird placements. It's got like um, album tracks that only work on the album, but they put on, and it's this really nice compilation. Uh, but I just started listening to them. I really loved them. I really dug them. I really dug the guitar work. Um, uh, again, this was the point where it's like riffs and crunchy songs. Every song has to have a riff. And then I was like, no, you can make a really nice song with a really nice melodic guitar line. And I just, I, I, that was, God, that was, how old am I? 29. That was like 12 years ago. And I, I've, I'm still a huge fan of them. They're, they're, they're straight in the top five. I can have a period where I'll just listen to them for like a fortnight. I'll just go through their discography on repeat. They're one of the few bands that, that there's a song on Brave, the previous album. Uh, I'm gonna sound, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disregard the toxic, toxic masculinity. There's a song on Brave that makes me well up. It's just, it, it's just a perfect moment. It's so good, and it, it generally makes you very emotional. It nearly brings me to tears, which oh. very few bands can do. I've tried to see them a few times. I was planning on seeing them this year, and then the world happened. Yeah, uh, they they're always touring. They're always doing live shows. They love their fans. They they couldn't tour obviously this month, so they live streamed one of their previous concerts on YouTube, and they had like fans commenting and they were commenting. They did a show at the Royal Albert Hall a couple of years ago with an orchestra, 
and it's just this clip to that is amazing. I, I love this band. They're not like other bands where I've sort of been like, uh, you know, they they were fine when I was just getting into music. I was like, yeah, this is this is my musical sort of um, world now, which is a bunch of men singing about uh, cannibal surf babes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd love, I'm determined to see them at some point uh, when the world is no longer a dumpster fire or mm-hmm. a garbage fire, or as we would say in Britain, a wheelie bin fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, make that makes it, it just, sound fun. <laughs> a, wheel, a wheelie bin fire. A wheelie bin fire. <laughs> a wheelie yeah. bin fire. It's one of those ones where you, you get into these really obvious, easy, accessible bands. And this is, I think, even though they are very complex, I don't think the comparisons to Genesis and other bands are apt because, like I said, they're way more accessible. Um, even in their earlier stuff, they were way more accessible, way more commercial. That's how they were able to build up this, this, this you know, this fan base. They were able to have, you know, top 20, top 10 singles, uh, you know, a smash hit. I think they they opened for Rush in like 1984 and they got booed off stage because <laughs> I, really yeah, the, the New York fans were not having it. They what? Like, they're, they're Rush like, fans. They're like the American <laughs> nerd equivalent. Like, yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh my god. Get off the stage. <laughs> we don't. We don't want you. Maybe um, they were mad because Marillion didn't have enough drums. And, and, I, and, and I, I think maybe it's because they had very, even though Rush were very commercial at the time. I think because they had very commercial, unapolog- but unapologetically progressive music. I don't know, maybe, again, I, I would murder somebody if I went to see Rush and there was an opening band. Thankfully, when I saw Rush, there wasn't an opening band, so my hands remained clean. But if there was, um, uh, what was my point again? Marillion. Well, well, yeah, what I, what I would love to ask you is just the, the final part of the question. Like Marillion fans nowadays, there's clearly tons of them. There's yeah. enough of them to keep this band going in a really positive way. The typical Marillion fan, are you the typical Marillion fan? Are they a little older than you? Do Marillion fans come in all shapes and sizes? And they, maybe Marillion will gain a few new fans through this podcast. You should be great. They come in all shapes and sizes. If you look at like one of their live shows, if you look at the crowd, it is a mix of... Uh, male and female old and young um just that there's a it's it's not like if you you know certain bands you might think about and you would see the crowd you go i expected as much i i expected all of these hairy men it is it's, <laughs> it's, it is very very varied i would say i i'm i don't know any marillion fans my age who know them casually or you know they, they might be aware of them i don't know anyone who was like massively into them who's my age i think maybe that's just growing up when everyone was getting into music it was the sort of indie boom of the mid 2000s yeah. it was uh, the the i don't know if, if these these bands were known in america but it was like all the bands with those their names the coots and um yeah the yeah, Fr- yeah. the, the coots the fratellis it was the big indie the, you know the the one pete already was in smells of heroin that one um <laughs> And it, of course, that's when you first get into music. So all of my friends were into that. And I was like, hey, guys, do you want to listen to this, you know, eight minute song with all these time <laughs> changes and, and all this and that? So I, I, I would say, you know, I would say I'm a typical Marillion fan in that there are no typical Marillion fans. Love it. Boom. Oh, my God. Boom. That's Boom. amazing. Spun that question around, flip the table. <laughs> you, you killed it. So yeah. uh, if you enjoyed 
you know, listening to this album along with us this week, what would we all recommend to listen to uh, as follow-up? Well, what, what I wanted to recommend, if you're listening to Marillion, I'm sure you already have, but I think to, I think the transition from of Marillion from the Fish era to the Hogarth era kind of maps, you know, they always, as you mentioned, uh, get compared to like early Genesis. Yeah. Um, but then when you listen to like solo Peter Gabriel, which is like some of my favorite music ever, yeah. there are definitely still progressive elements there, but it's not progressive rock. It's experimental and different yeah. and interesting in in its own way. And so in the same way that people shouldn't, you know, th- Peter Gabriel is so much different than his era of Genesis. I think you like, I think for a lot of people who like this album, I, I think the, the, the comparison I made is perfect. Uh, for me i'm gonna keep it short and sweet uh i don't fuck with a lot of prog not that i have any disrespect to prog Mm. but when i do fuck with stuff that's somewhat proggy uh i sure do love listening to can who are a you know proggy kraut rock band from the 70s into the 80s who i love a lot of their discography And then I mentioned them on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Check out Babe Ruth, who I love, who are a British prog band who were kind of obsessed with Westerns (laughs) from the mid to late 70s, who I think are just insanely cool and Mm. uh, are one of my faves. Uh, And Kyle had never heard of them, so I was proud of myself. But yeah, Babe Ruth and Can for me. What about you, Pete? What would you recommend listening to if you like this Uh, episode? I would recommend, uh, if you like this album, uh, listen to the first one they did with Steve Hogarth, which is called Season's End, which is that nice, like I was saying, that nice gap between Fish era and Steve era. Uh, If you like this album and you're like, boy, I like this, but I wish the songs were 20 minutes long and had lyrics about a magpie stealing somebody's penis, Listen to uh, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by yeah, Genesis. there we go. <laughs> if you're like, these lyrics are a bit too normal and introspective for me. Where's a, where's a twin who's not aware he's a twin and is a giant bug? Listen to Peter Gabriel. Um, also, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never had a tweet blow up, so I've never been able to promote my SoundCloud. But please, um, I have a SoundCloud, which is inspired by Marillion and a lot of other bands. Uh, it's called, like Louis said at the start, Damn Dirty Grapes, which is the funniest pun I'll ever come up with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I say if you like this album, check out Season's End and maybe uh, just check check them out. They're a great band. They make me cry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you for bringing Merlion to our attention, Peter, yeah. and a nice band that makes you cry. That's <laughs> sort of one of the things that we like on this show is bands that, that make us cry. Uh, for me, it's every band ever because uh, I'm very in touch with my with my feelings when it comes to absorbing art. And yeah, just once again, Peter's SoundCloud is SoundCloud slash Damn Dirty Grapes. Peter's a wonderful musician, primarily an excellent guitarist. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on to kick the jukebox. Thank you for having me. I'm as uh, happy as fish and as uh, gorgeous as geese. <laughs> that's how that's how happy being on here has made me. 
So this has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. Always such a pleasure to dive into a album of the week with you, Kyle. So much fun. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so next week is going to be our season finale. It's uh, going to be an album of Kyle's choosing. We've had so much fun doing this over the last few months uh, and we're going to take like a little bit of a break or we're going to release some really fun like retrospective episodes and then we're going to be back with a whole new season that's going to be really fun and involved and and awesome so uh, stay tuned for that it's going to be great we're Kyle and I are really looking forward to it we're excited please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you like what you're hearing and you can leave us an audio message on anchor.fm you can follow us on all social media of your choice. One more little thing, just want to say it only happened today. Uh, we lost Toots from Toots and the Maytals. Mm. I am sad about it. He was an incredibly brilliant musician. Um, we covered him on our episode where we talked about the soundtrack to The Harder They Come, so you can learn our thoughts about Toots on that episode, but uh, I wasn't happy to hear that news today. It was sort of crummy news. And on that note... <laughs> I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. We will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!